Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Ether is the perfect drug for Las Vegas. In this town, they love a drunk. Fresh meat. Come on, buddy. So they put us through the turnstiles and turned us loose inside. Welcome to another episode of Dose of Ether. Thanks for joining us. This is your host, Lucian, and again, our co-host joining us is Colin Couchet. Say hello, Colin. Hello, Colin. And you still have that sultry NPR voice going for you. I really dig it, man. It's it's like a delicious dish. You ever watch that SNL skit? Hello, what a delicious dish. Who wants to touch my sweaty balls? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen that one, but... I oh, I gotta send it. it. We'll put it in the show notes. How's that? Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, I so think that intro today, voice lasts for like just the intro. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. I go back to normal. Yeah. So yeah. hello and welcome back to my normal voice. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like you should be like wearing a smoking jacket and smoking a pipe and having like, you sound totally heftered out on this one, man. Anytime you do it, I love it. I love it. That's uh, great. <laughs> Great. Yeah, I'd be down. I'd love to have a smoking chair and have fireside chats uh, you while reading out of a leather-bound book. And drinking cognac like men. <laughs> yeah, not that into like actual cigars. I think it's uh, a little too harsh, a little too of a different century. Yeah, I don't. I don't do any. I don't like it. It just burns my throat. I mean, I smoked for many years, but I quit, and now I just don't want to touch anything like that. So. So, anywho, Ethereum. And what is that? The crazy stuff that has been happening this week. Holy um, shit, those prices, right? Yeah, I mean, I actually don't look at prices. Oh, you fancy. Now, I don't normally care, but it's nice when the boom happens. I, I definitely watch it. Um, I hear that like, they're going up. <laughs> yeah, it's gone up quite a bit. I mean, it's gone up like, what, 10% in the past 24 hours. And um, I think uh, Bitcoin went up like. 14, 15%. I mean, it hit 13,000, which is, uh, yeah, so that's that's pretty awesome. But uh, yeah. that means more people are going to be coming to look at this and more people are going to be, uh, have the money to purchase development resources to actually build some of the stuff they've been dreaming about. So, you know, this is a good thing. Yeah, I've um, kind of had like a very passive approach to uh, blockchain investing, mainly because I realized that my temperament isn't really suited for active investing Mm -hmm. um i start believing my own bs after a while so if i start reading the tea leaves of technical analysis i think i'll lose my mind yeah Um, it's all garbage i i I actually got in so i had so i bought ethereum at two dollars um back in uh i guess it was june 2015 is that right god i don't know time frames are kind of weird going back that far i don't remember what the actual month was um and I bought it like super low. I really wish I got the pre-sale wallet because I've been following Ethereum for a while. I had no crypto up to that point. The only way I could even get it is I had to go out to local Bitcoins and meet some shady dude at a, um, at a uh, what's it called, a, a, a Starbucks. And it was like me and he shows up and he's, he's got this look on his face like, what are you going to use this for? And then there's this like fat, weird looking dude in the back. And I'm like, that dude's going to buy child porn. And like, there's like all this like weird shady stuff surrounding it. And now it's like totally legitimized. Um, but the point is, is like, I've watched it. I had like, I bought like 400 Ethereum, like right off the bat. And then I got into margin trading on Poloniex. And yeah, 
that looked like it was a scam. And it seemed like they were, I can't say that for certain, but it seemed like uh, there was definitely a lot of people gaming the system, whether or not they're affiliated with Polynex or not, I have no idea. But it did not seem like I could actually, uh, the margin trading was actually legit. Um, a lot of that stuff in the troll box was junk. And I was like, you know what? I don't like Polynex. Let me go ahead and move to Bitfinex. Eight hours later, Bitfinex gets hacked. And 30 30 some odd percent of my assets just go gone. Uh, so, yeah, I'm no longer a, a person who's holding hundreds of Ethereum at all. In fact, I wound up selling it all uh, to kind of like get right with the world in certain ways and pay off some stuff. But, uh, yeah, I still hold a little bit now. Not a whole lot, but like a handful, like a couple. Just like a watch and be have some skin in the game. It's uh, it's interesting to kind of monitor how things progress. And um, it's nice to see some... Um, you know, uh, so many people investing in the technology. So I'm really excited whenever I see a bull bull run because I know that a bunch of innovation is about to come in the next, you know, six to eight months. Yeah, my strategy has been um, slow, fairly gradual accumulation and not trying to jump in and overly commit to any specific price point. Um, but at the same time, I feel like my time horizons are of such a long nature mm -hmm. that um, basically I've, I've never sold any crypto. I've only accumulated. Oh, wow. Um, and I hold almost, I only use exchanges really to uh, buy in. And wow. as a result, I've basically just kept accumulating um, foolishly, even when like the prices seemed like way too frothy, but mm -hmm. it's never been anything that like worried me. And mainly the bear market changed my outlook a little bit as opposed to like a get rich quick scheme. I think of it as a long term way to contribute and fund open source development, mm -hmm. um, even though it's not really how it works. Um, yeah, well, it's... it kind of is. I mean, the flow, the circulation pays off. Like, and that's right. the thing that I, you know, and that's why I'm like, the hodlers aren't really doing a whole lot of favors to the community um, because they're just like hoarding. And really what we need to do is have people buying and selling in order to keep things going. Um, yeah. But at the same time, people who take away the supply essentially create mm -hmm, a scarcity, sure, which sure. is what drives price movements. Yeah. Um, we actually do need large uh, buyers, essentially, to push prices up. Yes. And I actually question the authenticity of this current price spike. Um, I don't. I mean, like, you mentioned that you I got don't. into Bitfinex, but I'm assuming that, like, the printing of Tether helped make you whole for a while, at least, nope. or at least never helped uh, you. I lost, I lost, uh, of the assets they seized, I think I lost somewhere around 5 uh, I only gained like five percent back. Wow! Of the yeah, so if I lost, so they took thirty three percent of my overall assets, and of that thirty three percent, only about five percent of that I got back in the end. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, it. I, I for that reason. And how they didn't get sued, I don't fucking know. Like there should be a class action against these dudes. Like what they did. They're they they're just... under investigation by the um, New York my Financial Regulatory Service, and I feel like that. Can you imagine like if I like they took. I think somewhere around 30, 30 ether from me. Cause at that point, like I had 400 and I margin traded and learned my lesson. I was down to like almost hundred or something like that. It took something like 30, 30 ether away from me. Right. Right. Like, I'm not getting that. Like th what would that be worth right now? That That's good. That's good money. I could definitely use like, and we still live in a fiat world. So I still measure everything by fiat. I don't think like for me, it's useful to hodl too much right now. 
because um, I do see there being another crash at some point. Just no, just probably not in the next six to eight months. Um, I think we'll get through December personally. Just a guess. I don't know. Um, I have no idea either. Sorry. So <laughs> yeah, anyway, we're talking about prices, and that's not really what we're typically about. That's um, yeah. I'm actually like kind of clueless right now. I don't think I've looked at a chart all month at least. Um, well, boy, are you in for a pleasant up, surprise? So. <laughs> you are in for a very pleasant, pleasant surprise. So yeah, that's. Uh... Speaking of things that are essentially creating a bullish sentiment, um, this week Cloudflare actually Cloudflare. announced that they're going to be supporting a gateway to Ethereum, yeah. and. If you're wondering, like, how does that work? A centralized service giving you access to um, Ethereum data. Uh-huh. It works exactly like Infura does. They claim that they're not a competitor. They just want to extend the existing infrastructure that Infura um, has built. And um, I mean, Infura well, kind how of are they not? A, how are they not a competitor? They're not in a competitor because they're integrating into it. They're integrating into Infura. Okay, so they're using Infura to do the, the basically the batching kind of stuff, right? So someone actually asked in the comment, how is this not a full-fledged replacement of Infura? And one of the moderators on uh, the blog post from Cloudflare's website said, we want to be a complementary gateway to Infura. Yeah. So while we offer very sim- a similar functionality, we do not think of ourselves as a replacement. Yeah, and- so basically Infura has... The feature of base, uh, 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 it's basically load balancing transactions, right? Yeah. Um, so they're not load balancing any transactions. What they're basically doing is you can point your MetaMask to a Cloudflare URL or of some sort, um, which basically it gives you the same capabilities, say, a CDN would, um, but only for Ethereum gateways. That's, right? that's a really good example, especially because they also cache... Um... Uh, account balances and addresses and transactions. So essentially, rather than resolving to one of their hosted nodes, you essentially resolve to um, a database that contains the transactions. And essentially, Infura works the same way. The only way that they're actually able to scale up to the current level of uh, queries hitting their network is essentially establishing um, traditional uh, web 2.0 rather than web 3.0 infrastructure that resolves the queries and resolves it in a timely manner. Um, I assume, I, I hope that running your own Ethereum node is still faster, <laughs> right? Um, but there is the threat that eventually a large institutional player like Cloudflare essentially is better at serving data than the network itself is able to. Especially because of the scale of Cloudflare and their, um, they have great DNS resolvers. They have major, uh, major pieces of infrastructure to improve the routing. So, right. you well, let's be clear: of... like Cloudflare doesn't seem like they want to scale CryptoKitties. Like that's not their goal. Their goal isn't so that it's like you know why Infura is kind of like big is because CryptoKitties like adopted it. It was first of all, but like it was it was always the need was there. Like if you're is kind of like, if everybody's trying to, it's like they're trying. If you're solves the the single pipe problem, um, well, it doesn't solve it entirely, but it, it definitely assists with it. So you know, I mean, if everybody's trying to exchange on a smart contract and it's the 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 throughput can't meet demand, the price goes up, and so the transactional price becomes too much for 
your average user to want to deal with. So, you know, um, because the transaction cost is high for just simple uh, smart contract stuff, they just want to pay for the amount of gas used in the contract, but they don't want to pay the extra fee to get their, their actual transaction through during peak, you know, issues. Uh, so peak, uh, peak transaction, like transaction times, you know, so to deal with that Infura basically does some sort of, uh, transactional batching, I believe. Um, so you can actually send it, they send it through their service and then, uh, I mean, maybe they'll double check that, but I believe that's, that's actually correct. Cause it's been a while since I've looked at Infura. Um, yeah, no, they, they, um, they they basically enable it so that they can send. Uh, is that right? I don't know. Either way, I don't see like the CDN aspect of it and the the actual we're storing everything on our global network uh, to um, to increase responsiveness um, being a bad thing, especially considering that even light clients um, they require syncing, and on a mobile device that could be taxing. Agreed. Yeah. Essentially, it's solving the problem of a DAP developer who has to uh, essentially run and maintain their own node. Mm -hmm. And running an Ethereum node is taxing. Mm -hmm. um, it definitely costs at least like two to three hundred dollars of cloud storage fees to even run um, a full Ethereum node. And at the same time, you're still resolving... Does on it your really? Front end application, you are essentially hitting a. You're talking um, about an archival node, though, right? No, no, I'm talking about a full node. A full node costs two to three hundred dollars. Yeah, I, I can post to a, a reference article, and I personally think that it's because you need at least eight gigs of RAM, and because of the uh, quantity of network traffic um, hitting it. But I could put a reference article. Yeah, I'd love to see that article uh, because yeah. I've run uh, full Ethereum nodes on less hardware than eight gigs of RAM. Um, but I mean, and they ran just fine. Um, I, 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 I just, I'm kind of curious. I mean, the only problem is storage space, but even then, like, you know, it's not that much storage space. You also need to pay for um, SSD storage space as well. So that would be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. But that's still not, no, it's a requirement. What? Your node won't sync if it's not SSD. That's, storage. Bullshit. that's not true. I've done that without, without SSD storage. Yeah, it, it, the simply the I unless they change something, I've got. I mean, I did it on AWS. Uh, I didn't do it on the micro. I did it on a medium. I think. Okay. Yeah. Um. um it, but you also need it to basically be reliably up. Um, and that's mm. basically something that you have to host just to be able to um, interact with the network and serve data coming off of the network. Um, mm. And it's technically not even your app right like you have to host your app in addition to all of that as well mm. the only reason that you would host your own node is essentially to provide quote decentralization for your application but you have applications like augur that say that it's not enough for them to um, point directly to a um, cloud run ethereum node oh, oh. they have you run one locally and then yep. connect to it that way um, Something I, I do is, uh, or have done, I, I, you know, I haven't done a lot of stuff lately, to be honest with you, um, in, in the development side of things. The, uh, but what, I, you know, back in like 2017 is, is, is 
you build the app and the app is the DAP, I should say. The DAP is basically just a front end with Web3 connectors that connect to a Geth IPC. And then you take Geth and the chain data and you bundle it all together. And then you stick it in an Electron app and you tell them to go, you know, go sync as soon as it's installed. And so like that's part of the install process is just, and every time it fires up, they just resync. Um, and then that that's pretty much like what I've done is like you just bundle Geth with the actual application, load it up. You literally click on it like it's like like Slack is built in the same process. So yeah. Slack, you know, and so it's basically the same thing. It's all bundled together in one little tight package. You do it, it comes with an installer, and then people install it, and they don't even ever have to touch a web server or anything. Right. And it's, it's very seamless and easy. It's still a lot of uh, time um, yep. to sync a full node, and it's a lot of computational resources. So can you imagine if like multiple Ethereum apps have you running multiple clients because it's already bundled into it? Um, oh, but it also checks to see if there's one that already exists. That's true. And it's pointing yeah. to the same chain. So you know, it's like you don't have to do it that way, but I, I get it. And, and with light clients, it should be even less of a big deal. Yeah. Um, you only need like what two hundred megabytes for that? Is that right? Um, Sorry, two hundred megabytes is. I think a full node currently is about three hundred gigabytes. Um, so a I light think... client, I think, is like two hundred megabytes. Is that yeah. Yeah. So that's I... not bad. That's that's something you can do in you know a modern modern um, internet. That's something you can do rather quickly. Um, it's probably something that we didn't have light clients for mobile for now. Um, yeah, it's not realistic it's, for mobile. Yeah, it's doable on a um, on a laptop that's right. connected to Wi-Fi. Absolutely. So I actually did an episode recently on light clients, and I read about. So the Geth light client isn't as well supported. I think um, Parity put a bunch of resources behind their light client implementation, mm -hmm. um, and it's like it's spelled feather without mm -hmm. the a so it's like feather f e -th er anyways yeah, got it. um the i found it really interesting because they also built a javascript package for um doing like a pub sub subscription style like so you would subscribe to events um and then that would actually resolve to the light client which would then request specific pieces of data and it would make specific packet requests for the data that your application needs. I found this really interesting. Wait, what, say that again. So wait, what did they do differently than, let's just say that one more time. They implemented something called like light.js and mm -hmm. you essentially, um, you have to follow this very specific design pattern for subscribing to events. Um, but they abstracted it away through the uh, a replacement for Web3. So rather than having like Web3.js, mm -hmm. which you would normally interact with uh, through RPC calls, it's more similar to like a subscription-based model that um, essentially communicates specifically with light clients in order for the light client to request the needed data. So right. the light client itself would only request for specific pieces of data that was requested by light.js. Mm -hmm. Oh, it basically wouldn't store anything unless it was, 
it had the event associated with it, I guess. Huh? Exactly. Yeah. So you and, subscribe and to since event, it and that's... stores very little, essentially, then it also has to make requests for specific pieces of data. And then the right. question becomes like, okay, where do you request that information? Because you don't have enough information to completely validate the entire block. Right. right? So right. then you have to depend on like a random subsection of nodes to essentially serve you data while at the same time you're not providing the rest of the network with any data that you get because you can't validate it um yeah so yeah, yeah i found I mean, this you're basically really... a user you're a user node i mean but yeah. the, the thing is like i don't think uh yeah i mean it's it's New. I mean, I appreciate like it's very new. That's that's and cool, and I think it's super it, useful. But I'm very very sketched about letting parity drive the conversation. Um, not because I, I I don't. It's just they uh, they are a single point of corruption in my mind. Uh, so and any they corporation kind of went off spec because yeah, Geth hasn't that implemented the same thing on yeah. um, their Ethereum nodes. So I would like to see a more standardized right, a light client implementation yep. um, that both Parity and Geth um, can basically work together on. So it's like more stable and uh, I haven't seen any project built off of it except essentially what Parity has built. But again, this is new. I think it's right. been released in the last two months. Right. Um, and, and honestly, it's, it's from a design perspective, it's pretty straightforward. The reason Parity can do it is because they have kind of full authoritarian control over their own design, meaning that they own the client. They can make decisions like that. They don't have to go through committee. They don't have to go through approval. They just go ahead and build it. And that's great and all, but all right. So I liken what's going on with this to be more akin to uh, Oracle deviate, Oracle and Microsoft M MSQL deviating from ANSI SQL standards. Does that make sense? And I see Ethereum Foundation as being setting an actual standard and Parity setting a bunch of shortcuts which if people get dependent on, they'll be dependent on their products. And if they're dependent on their products, it means they got renewals. And if they got renewals, then they, I mean, even though most of them are, are given away, they, you know, they've got services and renewals and that kind of stuff. They, they're right. still at business. It, it's still free and open software, but the idea it's the is way that if they you capture. have something that's It's captured. Like... It's captured. Yeah. And so as a result, if they start making poor decisions and you're captured, you're stuck with those decisions because then you'd have to spend a ton of money untangling technical debt associated with your product. And I don't see it as being necessary to have those shortcuts at this particular moment, especially since Cloudflare just released what to me seems like a pretty solid way of dealing with uh, node, you know, interaction. And that uh, they already have a CDN network all the way across the globe. Um, is Cloudflare backed by Akamai, or are they just are they independent? I can't remember. Um, um, by who? Uh, is it Akamai? Yeah, the uh, the 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 CDN producers, the guy with the from the guy who literally like invented CDNs and um, he wound up dying in 9-11. Um, I, yeah, Akamai. Know, I don't know the yeah. reference. Akamai but... Technologies, they're a huge company. I just wasn't sure if like um, uh, uh, the, um, if Cloudflare runs on them or if they have their own um, CDN system, but um, yeah, no, Akamai versus Cloudflare. It looks like they are two different systems. So um, anyway, uh, the point is, is that, um, yeah, I think that's a pretty solid way of actually interacting with nodes for most people. I think a lot of the, you know, the, the picky stuff 
I think the word I was looking for is pecuniary, but uh, picky stuff is um, uh, is only relegated to people who are hardcore in the space. And I think the average user who just wants to do simple transactional work across the network is going to want to, um, you know, something that's responsive, something that's on demand, something that doesn't eat up their bandwidth or just cell phone usage, something that um, can, you know, they can just pick up and use. Uh, and has backbone support for things like IPFS pinning, which could be extremely useful um, to people who want to do local storage or, or transfers um, to various devices. I, I think I think all those things are really uh, enabled by a system like Cloudflare. And so I, I think that's fine. I think what they're doing is great. I, I do have questions about how a user can independently verify that Cloudflare is operating as a good actor on every given any given transaction. <laughs> they but, can run a node. <laughs> but they can, they'd have to run a node, right? So you basically have to provide third-party oracles which can verify and check, and then you'd have to trust those oracles and so on and so on. There's just turtles right. on top of turtles on top of turtles on top of elephants. Right. Um, and so I just, I feel like, uh, I feel like it's an interesting development, and I think it's going to enable different kinds of apps. And I think the security model of everything must be uh, perfect um, and everything must be 100% trustless all the time is flawed. I think the backbone needs to be trustless. I think the core principle behind all, all things need to be trustless, but a, 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 you know, a simple DAP, most of them don't need that level of, of trustlessness, especially considering that it's still better than a centralized service, which is what the entire world want, runs on currently. So, uh, yeah, no, I think it's great. Yeah. It's um, it's definitely a trade-off. Having large institutional players within the Ethereum ecosystem is um, it's becoming more and more normal. Uh-huh. And for example, the Ethereum Foundation this week joined the Ethereum Enterprise uh, Enterprise Alliance and the Hyperledger Foundation. I think um, because there's so many developers working on top of Ethereum, then mm-hmm. the adoption from larger institutional players has just become normal. Yep. Because if that's what your developers already have experience on, and that's where you could find the most developers in the blockchain ecosystem, then large institutional players end up playing along with the uh, Ethereum ecosystem, right? It's like a double-edged sword in the sense that most development jobs are working with Ethereum, most developers work with Ethereum, it's a self-reinforcing aspect. So then eventually service providers like Cloudflare see this and say, okay, we see the infrastructure challenges associated with Web3, let's offer some convenient projects or products that could uh, win more work with the developer community that already builds off of Ethereum. I find it interesting that like this specific gateway, um, the Ethereum gateway is something that originally was offered by consensus. And I can't help but notice what a massive differentiating advantage it was in that in order to be able to build a developer app during a hackathon, for example, like you can't just sync a full node and then run your app off of a full node on your computer, right? Because Sometimes in the amount of time, depending on the capabilities of your computer and your network connection, you wouldn't actually have time to sync that full node during the time of the hackathon. Yeah. So a lot of people got, myself included, I basically oh, we just got deployed. I, I was at a hackathon and we just deployed private nodes. 
Uh, we just private notes. I just yeah. Uh, what I what we did in preparation, knowing that it was coming up, was make it make a make it as as a repeatable process as possible to deploy a uh, a private node, and then walking in, um, just executed those tools, and then deployed a private node on AWS, and then uh, yeah, uh, that that was yeah, proof of authority, of course, but yeah. Right. We um, I basically connected to uh, one of the test nets through Infura. Yeah, that's and... probably would have been a better plan, but we were we were not actually going on mainnet ether because we wanted to do whatever the hell we wanted, and I thought we yeah. wanted more responsiveness than I think Ethereum provides. So, yeah, and this is kind of like a next um, another option, really. It's just really interesting that mm-hmm. they kind of like decided to build this in. Um, the IPFS gateway was actually a lot more of a surprise uh, compared to the Ethereum gateway. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's actually a third-party service I think they work with, right? Uh, what was it called? Uh, Cloudflare? No, 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 no. Uh, because of the P, I want to say. Pinata. Uh, no, Pinata is actually just a financial incentive model for someone to actually pay for the hosting of your um, IPFS gateway. But what Oh, Cloudflare, they do have an... Okay, yeah, I see. What Cloudflare see. built was the gateway to be able to access IPFS. So the same way, like if you build something mm-hmm. with IPFS, you need to host an IPFS node in order mm-hmm. for it to resolve mm-hmm. queries that you send to it. Um, oh, decentralized file storage is one of my pain points. I really want... I mean, like IPFS is just an addressing system in, in my mind. They're nothing more than that. It's because um, they haven't fixed the actual incentivization of uh, incentivization model, but yeah. Well, it, it's a little it's, more than that, actually. It's it's about the fact that you can't get availability guarantees out of IPFS, even with their incentivization model. Mm-hmm. And availability guarantees are essential for any decentralized storage mechanism. Sure. Um, I mean, and what's so the you, point need of a, having... you need a yeah, you need a self-checking network that basically can verify that you are able to retrieve any given file at any time and reward people. Who identify files which have fallen off are, are, about, are at risk of falling off the network and replicating them, um, and th- those kind of things are, are essential for any sort of availability guarantee uh, at all. But even then, it's only a probabilistic one. So if you really want absolute guarantees, you're going to need to be centralized. But I, I still feel like I, I don't know. I I feel like uh, we're not there yet. But once we are, oh my god. That and decentralized compute are going to be major, 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 major shifts in the way that we do things. Um, so looking at things like TrueBit, uh, Filecoin, uh, storage, these are all like really interesting technologies. Um, and then add privacy on top of that with people like New Cypher. Um, and some of their also their, uh, they also have some decentralized compute as well with uh, their uh, homomorphic encrypted co- uh, smart contracts, which can enable some interesting types of calculations to occur. Um, on the EVM, which doesn't even necessarily have to be on chain, um, in my opinion, uh, they could just use the EVM as a baseline. WebAssembly would be even better. Um, but yeah, no, it's just interesting to see where the world's going to go in the next five, ten years when all this stuff starts to mature. But until then, like, yeah, we're just kind of stuck with like, not stuck. We're having fun with, um, you know, very simple stuff. Uh, you know, prediction markets, which by the way aren't simple, but they're still like not the same realm of complicated you know, enterprise level applications that you'd need uh, that you get from those other kind of services that we need. Uh, anyway, speaking of infrastructure issues, um, do you, uh, there's, uh, there's uh, people are trying to, um, there's this disaster relief program 
mm-hmm. that they're using uh, dye for. Yeah, so Oxfam piloted a project of um, providing disaster relief in the form of cash aid um, to a South Pacific nation of um, Vanuatu. Vanuatu. I've actually never heard of it, so that I'm gonna pull out my map fictional afterwards. Shit. That sounds like that sounds like where yeah we went to the island of Valanatu, where we encountered a giant five-story tall monkey. We named him King Kong. He stole our women and climbed the Empire State Building. <laughs> like it just seems like a fake place. <laughs> I love these. I, I well, I checked Google Maps just now, <laughs> which I should have done a little bit before, um, but it is. Basically, a South Pacific Coral island Spain. made out of uh, roughly 80 islands. Oh, it's near Australia. Yeah. Near Solomon Islands. Got it. It's near Fiji. It's between Fiji and the Solomon Islands. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And the idea is that um, Oxfam, in partnership with... Oh, it looks beautiful. I want to go there. Uh, consensus. We should all go there. And the Australian <laughs> news outlet, Mickey. Uh-huh. Okay, that's the news out and an Australian tech firm named Sempo. Um, they basically used a die-backed stable coin to onboard 32 vendors and 200 residents. So they On gave the vendors way. Android smartphones uh-huh. and allowed them to use them as point-of-sale devices, and they provided tap-to-pay cards for the 200 residents. So this is basically an attempt at using stablecoins for uh, disaster relief. And the novelty of this is that, um, first of all, I've never heard of any other nonprofit program using a stablecoin. Uh, but also it's a way to, if you've ever heard of this nonprofit called Give Directly. No. It's, uh, suppo- it should be the standard by which all nonprofits are measured by, because essentially what they do is they work with a mobile payment system like oh. M-Pesa, and they distribute um, cash grants directly to recipients, and it's been tested in um, Africa and South America mostly. And they essentially would give cash grants in the quantity of several years worth of income so that they could Uh make capital investments. And um, they essentially can use this money however they want. And about, I don't know, 97, 98% of the... um, of the costs of the program go to the recipient. So it's a way to essentially minimize the um, cost of a nonprofit's uh, operating costs uh-huh. so that they could maximize the amount that they donate to the recipient communities. Hmm. And it's a really big program, but it also highly depends on um, mobile payment systems that mm-hmm. are built off of uh, SMS technology and most of which have actually been bought by telecom companies like Vodafone, mm-hmm. especially in Africa. So um, this is, if the country doesn't have this type of mobile payment infrastructure, 
they could actually be onboarded to uh, payment infrastructure like DAI uh, through mobile applications as well. Now, what problem is this solving? It seems like they're saying that faster aid is kind of the key here. Uh, according to this article that you sent me uh, uh, as conductor of the program, uh, you uh, it takes time for ID checks and bank physics, and it takes about an hour per person to sign up for a bank account. Um, yeah. Whereas with diet, it takes six minutes. So if you're trying to get quick disaster relief to, let's just say, you know, 6,000 individuals, it would take 6,000 hours of of bank time uh, of time just to sign up for a bank account, let alone actually cashing the checks and uh, you know waiting for them to clear. Whereas to die, it takes six minutes to get onboarded and you know three minutes to get your money. Um, and then you can re- re- as long as people are accepting the die as legal tender or currency or payment in some way, um, then the actual resolution can be pulled to the person who's actually giving them relief. And then they right. can, yeah. Then they can resolve that on demand um, by converting their die into Ethereum and then Ethereum in the Coinbase, and then taking yeah, it out of there. Essentially, they <clears throat> they would also have to find a program that would allow the vendors to cash out, right? Like you always, essentially, within these developing yeah. world contexts, need to make it real for the participants, um, unless essentially they traditionally were complete grants and the supplies that were being given away were essentially for free. So you only use blockchain as a means of account and not actually a store of value. Um, But I think a uh, telling example isn't necessarily how fast people sign up. It's what the grant making organizations tried to accomplish with this. And I Mm -hmm. think there's another line a little further down that kind of highlights like the dichotomy of like, is this useful? Is it beneficial? So it says, quote, the trials showed that the blockchain tech doesn't change the main problem for the use of humanitarian aid and doesn't really help prevent fraud, but serves instead as a, quote, a way to maximize the likelihood that honest systems remain honest, end quote. So the scale of this specific nonprofit implementation is pretty small. Um, the impact of the application itself is relatively small. It's not, quote, trustless technology. It Mm -hmm. doesn't solve fraud. Um, It does provide a bit of transparency. um, But in terms of financial transparency, like, it's a little too much, right? You'll be able to see every, like, purchase of uh, napkins by an individual refugee. But uh, you don't know who those individual refugees system. are. See, they're pseudonymized. And so it doesn't matter. It's like the account that holds them, you know, you don't, it's not attached to an, a particular person. Well, I mean, an account is attached to a particular person because that account holds that die. So every time that no, no, person makes I'm a purchase, I'm saying like just by looking at the blockchain, just but, by looking at the transactional ledger, you can't necessarily determine who. I mean, there's probably ways you can determine who. Like, oh, exactly. I saw him purchasing a napkin at that time, so that must be his account. Right. Exactly. Um, of course, then you could just use a burner wallet. That's true. Right. Um, yeah, that's... that'd be cool. That's a great, great use of burner wallets right there. 
burner wallets. Oh man, I wish I brought that up to us. Humanitarian aid are actually the exact opposite because Mm -hmm. um, humanitarian organizations have a mission to essentially ensure that the funds that they give out are appropriately used by the intended recipients. That's that's kind of the danger of having like just uh donating to an area that's less developed especially if you don't have a lot of infrastructure into place because the question is how could you ensure that the intended recipient actually got the money instead of having it being squandered by a corrupt government who takes all of the donation funding moves it to a swiss bank and then uh the son of the dictator lives in morocco yeah but that's that's not a new problem i get it it's not yeah so but this just makes things on board i think the the point the point we need to focus on here is that die is actually being used somewhere and it's being used in a very 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 uh cool way um and that it's 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 i like how this is a small test case that is they're basically capitalizing on it. So I would I use that word capitalizing. It has a negative connotation, but in this sense, I mean, it's a good thing. They're capitalizing on a disaster by using it to prove a new technology and benefiting the people who they're trying to, uh, you know, uh, assist uh, in the process. Right. I, think, uh, I think that's really a great way to get things done. One of the things that I, I have, unfortunately, I mean, like, I have, a, I have both a very optimistic path and a very pessimistic path. And I think one of the pessimistic paths to adoption is that a major disaster comes. It causes a financial crisis of the likes of which we, we, we only deal with every couple hundred years. Um, and, uh, and we actually, uh, which might actually be less than a couple hundred years this time, but because um, Great Depression was pretty bad. Uh, but uh, the only way that people can gain any value out of their fiat is to basically convert it to uh, crypto. And then we, what we have is automatic adoption just by tragedy. Um, yeah. This is kind of like that <laughs> in that sense. And that there's this tragedy. Why would these Venatu people ever want to stop using DAI? They're basically tethered to the US dollar. Right. Um, and they basically just got themselves onto crypto US dollar. That's yeah. pretty cool. Now they do need that collateral, which, you know, is pretty, pretty major. But they, you know, they they don't need that for. I don't know. It just to me seems like a really interesting proof that, um, and Venezuela is another one that uh, disaster is is a path to adoption. <laughs> right. Okay. Essentially, I got to a dark place. Sorry. <laughs> no, I don't think that's dark at all. And I think there are many people that are. Um, really open about this i think an example and i'm gonna have to dig this out for the show notes but i think it was nick carter who basically Mm -hmm. said that he supports andrew yang because andrew yang is going to finally trigger the hyperinflation that they've been predicting since the Mm -hmm. last uh recession and that hyperinflation is going to lead to mass adoption of bitcoin um so yeah, I, I don't want to get into that politics because I think uh, I mean I, I see both I'm sides quoting, of that argument. I'm going. I'm going to have to look up his quote. The, I'm it's pretty it's sure a dangerous line you walk it. when you start doing implementing baseline socialist wage into society. But it could also be beneficial because what we're seeing is a floor dropout. Uh, and so anyway, I don't want to get into that. That's not what the show's about. Um, I could actually see both sides on that one. I just wish he wasn't like as as a particular person in our Slack said, but I will not name because they are prominent to the network uh, is I wish he didn't have to resort to high school election tactics in order to get in to, in order to get his name heard, such as I'm going to make 
all uh, everybody uh, get an extra chocolate milk with lunch. You know, <laughs> I thought that was a hilarious comparison because that's kind of what he's doing. That's true. <laughs> but um, I mean, on this topic, we can actually basically take this exact cash giveaway scheme and scale it up nationwide. Yeah. And that's essentially what he's proposing. Yeah. Like what he's proposing is essentially the trial for disaster relief that was uh, experimented on in the small island of Vanuatu, um, but scaling up to over three and um, 350 million people. <laughs> but here's, here's the, here's the flip side of it. One, it's expensive to really sort people by need. Uh-huh. Oh, it's not just expensive, it's damn near impossible. And it's also deeply intrusive and humiliating to the participants involved. There are many people who qualify well, legally for social benefits that have been scared or intentionally intimidated out of the system. Right. So we have a system that is intentionally introducing friction so mm. that there are less people claiming the benefits that in law are available to them. So you know what sucks wonder... worse than you know what sucks worse than fear of, of losing privacy or, or, or fear of, of being exposed is fear of dying of starvation. So yeah. I mean like cut the crap. Uh, that's just my opinion on that, but whatever. Right. No, it, Maslow's hierarchy of needs always wins. Uh I'm not saying okay. that like it's fear of lack of privacy or intimacy that uh, scare people away from public services. Uh -huh. I'm like referring to, and I haven't read this book, so I really shouldn't reserve uh, refer to it. But Kafka's modern take on the Minotaur's uh, labyrinth, in uh -huh. how a endless and oppressive bureaucratic system slowly crushes the life yeah. out of you so that even if you are best intentioned and you're a social worker and you want to help someone you literally can't help them navigate through the endless maze of paperwork and bureaucracy so that the programs that are available for them do actually help them yeah. and that's kind no, of I, what we really need that. to avoid right like at a yeah. certain point there's a right and a wrong and we as a society have agreed that certain people um, are deserving of help but the well, question is i'm really is, excited that this die thing is is even you know out there in that it, it shows because uh, you just talked about that friction and this is a friction eliminator right you know, and, and, and will it always be a friction eliminator? Probably, because honestly, why would you go back? Like, it'd be very difficult to roll back, roll back that kind of convenience. If you, you could know? programmatically decide eligibility, yep. mm -hmm. then it's a friction eliminator. If you That's have amazing. Uh, amazing. subjective, valuable human institutions making yep. a determination on your worthiness as a human being to live, then you're going to have a bad time. Yep. And yep. yeah, that's that's kind of the benefit of programmatic money. Um, how we get there, it's remained to be seen. But I think the nonprofit sector, um, I think, um, I forgot the name um, of the individual specifically who's working to essentially build a DAO for nonprofits uh -huh. so that like you have a say of how your money are actually spent even after you've donated. Right um and yeah i just riff. think let's just bring this back to to yeah. the ether for a second because we have a tendency to go off off talk talk about what ether is uh, enabling people to accomplish but we don't talk about like why 
and like a DAO is basically like one of those things that you can really only do effectively on Ethereum right now with well, not only, but like it's, it's where the major research efforts are going. Right. And I think that that, that really just needs to, you know, not just, would you consider diet? Yeah. Make or DAO. So yeah. Um, like, you know, all these things, these decentralized autonomous organizations that enable that they're only enabled with programmatic money in, in, that smart contract system that Vitalik um, proposed in his white paper that eventually got built by Gavin and got built by um, uh, 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 brain. Uh, Nick Johnson was early in that. Um, the wallets that people built like uh, Fabian, um, uh, uh, Vlad, Zamfir, like all these people participating in the development of, of this ecosystem have really changed the world and we're only just now starting to see how and they saw it years ago and i i just i just i don't know i just want to kiss the ass for a second i guess but you know ethereum is pretty awesome yeah it just is it's just great and that, now i don't know if it'll always be the most awesome and so that's the that's interesting me and most fanboys is that i think like at i was a fanboy until i started learning about some of the other things that are coming out and then i'm like holy shit like once they proved that this is a cool thing and that this could be amazing this starts to look like really early stage tech. So the, the the world is actually looking to be really revolutionized in the next decade. And uh, Ethereum is the leader in that. And they're leading the conversation and they're driving people towards building things. And I just, I really appreciate it. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I, I'm sorry if I, I went on a little like ask Casey ramp there, but I just no, 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 it makes sense because I I do feel like a large portion of the Ethereum community is ideologically backed behind the idea of um, creating a economic alternative that mm-hmm. has better social outcomes than mm-hmm. um, than current models and economic model experimentation is foundational yes right? and that's what they're doing they built a system for us to experiment with this shit finally right radical markets would not have been as interesting a book if it were not for the fact that vitalik said actually i could use some of this stuff right and that right? we have a playground in which to create micro economies in which we could experiment with uh things like bonding curves or different things like that yeah and another example of these micro economies and experimentation is uh griff green and giveth.io yeah. they've been working okay. for a very long time on essentially changing the way uh nonprofits work and this mm-hmm. was a project that really early on kind of uh triggered this awakening of the potential of how programmable money can actually change social outcomes mm-hmm. right and yeah i do feel like a lot of the ethereum community is tightly coupled with the nonprofit world because a lot of the nonprofit world has kind of realized that they need some sort of tech entrepreneurship in pushing real outcomes. Right, right. You need to make you need to change how people live, work and collaborate in order to be able to create real social change. And now that so, you have a microcosm to experiment on, then it's just up to us to come out with creative ways to um, convince disparate groups of people to experiment with new things. Speaking of change, let's change the topic. Um, we could go on this forever, and there's one more topic I think we wanted to cover briefly before uh, before we move on. Um, you found this this cool little um, DAP creator called Ethsites.io. 
um, which uh, uh, which I hadn't seen before you showed showing it to me. Um, and I just want to talk a little bit about the design principles behind it. Not not because I necessarily think it's there. I think it's got some issues with it still, but uh, well, just in the, the way it was designed. But um, I want to talk about how it was built and how it was designed um, a little more. Um, so first off, do you want to give the synopsis for what Etsites does, or do you want me? So I can give you a synopsis of what I understood Etsites to do. But mm-hmm. essentially, it wanted to create a registry con- uh, contract that um, created specific pieces of data they have i checked to see what they have on there and they have a paper on cryptography and a (laughs) one-liner uploaded to the site currently there's only two entries in the registry Mm -hmm. um but how they did it i think is more interesting right because they basically wanted to use the ethereum blockchain as a permanent repository of information Uh uh-huh yeah so they wanted to create an immutable website I mean, it's not immutable in that it, it, it's it's got a, rec- a, tra- a trail, a, rec- a record of traceability uh, associated with it. And what they did is they basically. So, I, all right. So I'm gonna not, before I jump ahead and give my analysis on it. Let me just describe what it does. Basically, what they do is they take a um, a registry contract. Uh, you know, it's just pretty straight center stuff. I've been using them since early days, uh, uh, and they register um, their site with that uh, contract. Um, and then they actually, I believe, let me make sure I'm correct about this, but reading the code real quick. Um, it looks as though they, uh, they actually register, see, that's the thing. Where's the key entry ID, chunk index, chunk, chunk data. Okay. Um, they, uh, they, they take, you can take a site. It's not a URL. You just, it's a file itself, an actual file itself. And rather than taking that file and then, putting it in IPFS and then pinning it and then having people pull it from IPFS, which is what the current system does. What they instead do is something even more replicated, I guess you could call it. Um, and what they do is they take, you, they give you the, um, they, they, they take a hash of that site um, and then they register it with a registry contract. And then for every registered site, um, they then uh, associate. They then take the actual file itself, LZ compress the whole thing, chunk it up into uh, into bytes, and then store those bytes on um, bytes per chunk. So then store those bytes. It looks like actually in the contract, which might not be correct either. Chunk index bytes per chunk. Yeah. Because I don't see anything here that's doing any sort of decentralized storage. Yeah, it's got a chunk I didn't entry. notice either. I was quite surprised by that when I peeked under the hood. When I first heard of it, I'm like, okay, cool. So you register an IPFS address and you put it on chain. Nope. <laughs> no, right. it's different. Right. And so what they do is they take the chunk data, they take the bytes of the chunk data, they UTF-8 it, they add, uh, add chunk transaction, and they add an entire chunk and the chunk data with the transaction, my only problem is uh, how are they actually storing the data? Because the data is too large. Ah, but that's that's why they're doing it. Okay, I got it. So the actual registry contract handles the storage of the data, um, and so they've got uh, uh, 
bites per chunk is 9,216, which I guess allows them to come under the, the gas limit of a standard Ethereum node. And then they actually store the actual site inside of the registry contract. I don't think this is a wise paradigm, personally. Um, first off, it's extremely, extremely expensive to do this. Every 256 bits, every single memory address that you store in an Ethereum contract is 20,000 gas. Um, to replicate an um, entire site inside of a smart contract isn't, uh, isn't practical. Um, you don't want that everywhere, and you don't want everybody to have it now. I do see there being actual niche use cases for this, though. If you want there to be an immutable router system in your code so that somebody can pull down your website and it has basically nothing more than what is a discovery mechanism for where your website should be, um, enabling you to um, prevent people from taking down your site. So if they take it down in one place, they can't take it, you know, that's fine because guess what? Your, your site is actually going to discover in another place where it could exist. It has one possible way to do it. Um, you could change individual bytes uh, in such a way, but the problem is it's LZ compressed and you can't store metadata with this contract, so that's not good. Overall, I think there there's potential for actual niche use cases here, but on the whole, I don't see this as being a solution to decentralized websites at all. Um, so I was doing some decentralized file storage work and we were using IPFS because the the, you, the storage problem, uh, you can store a single IPFS address in a single memory address in the EVM. Whereas with this, it would require multiple memory addresses to store a single website. So I just don't see it as being a viable alternative to that approach. Um, it's a neat little experiment, but I don't think it warrants having their own URL at the site's uh, IO uh, to... to you know, I think they need to change what they're doing a little bit if they're going to make it worthwhile. Um, but that said, I think it's it's good to point that out because a lot of people getting in this space early, including myself, we're like, oh, I'll just store everything in the blockchain. That doesn't work. Um, and the reason it doesn't work is because it just costs too much. And it's uh, it's it costs too much uh, to to store. And it's not fair to the rest of the community to store that much stuff. Um, I'd rather just have an IPNS address in Ethereum and then allow uh, people to do sort of changes based off that. Mm -hmm. But uh, at the, the the way this is built, I just don't think it's viable. Yeah, I'm actually surprised that like the gas costs aren't more because I'm looked through the actual transactions and mm -hmm. don't get me wrong, eleven dollars for a, a single transaction is a lot, <laughs> but Whoa. I'm surprised it isn't more. How much is it? How much is the gas cost, though? How much is the gas cost? Yeah. Um. Seven. Uh, Gway. No. Which is like no. normal, usually. Mine, no. mine have averaged around eleven recently. So. Wait, no, 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 not. I'm sorry. How much gas did the transaction consume? How much gas did the transaction consume? The highest out of all of the transactions is point zero three uh, five which is about $12 worth. And this is at a wait, gas wait, price uh, no, no, of seven I, I, GUA. Yeah, how much gas? The actual number for gas. Gas so, used oh, by transaction, yeah. 5 million. 
<laughs> yeah, you can't. That's sixty-two percent of an entire block, and that basically. Uh, yeah. I'm pretty sure this transaction. I think that's over the gas limit. What's the gas limit per transaction? It's eight million. Oh, uh, on your chain, I thought it was. Uh... I'm looking at the main chain. Because these uh, are po these are published really? on main chain. Wow. Um, yeah. For some reason, I thought it was. I thought it was less than that for I, I don't know i don't remember numbers very well so i thought the gas limit per transaction um it's a was, it's not per transaction it's per block no i'm only talking about per transaction right i'm saying there is no gas limit per transaction you can fill up an entire oh, really? block with oh, one okay. transaction i thought there was a transactional gas limit for some reason no nope. um all right cool well then that's great um yeah uh, but that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm actually really surprised by the design. Dude, um, the so part much. of the design that stood out to me the most is mainly the way that they interact with this. Um, so normally when you click on a link, you want to see the URL. You want to essentially know the source and provenance of what you're doing. Um, but the way the contract is set up, you essentially don't have any indicator to the name the source or anything really besides an index within the registry context so it's the equivalent of like clicking on a link without having anything to see what you're clicking on huh. <laughs> i found that yeah. to be the most interesting design principle especially with such a high security minded uh group um, especially because you need metamask turned on for this i found that specific part because though I don't know how hard it would be to inject uh, browser-based malware within Ethereum bytecode and <laughs> upload it onto this contract. So someone who like is sorting through the indexes randomly picks up a page that <laughs> injects a browser exploit like into your uh, into your browser because you have no idea on what link you just pressed or what code you just decompiled in browser. Yeah. But that's kind of my paranoia besides this design system. Anyways, huh. I think I agree with you. Usually I point to decentralized story, a storage um, and then essentially have the pointer on chain and use the data that is in Ethereum as a way to communally agree upon the location of the data. Um, IPFS is nice because you can't essentially change the data without also changing the address. So if you change the contents or you try to inject malicious data, um, it will be represented within the hash, which is also included in the URL. Um, but yeah, this design was fairly interesting and I... I know some of the researchers that have that worked on this during the IC3 hackathon. So I was kind of interested to check out how it works. And it's more surprising on how they designed it than anything else, really. Very strange design decisions. Okay, so I see where I was getting... Also, by the way, while you're saying that, I was getting some stuff cleared up. Like, why do I have the idea that there's a transactional gas limit? It's just things I've read before yeah. and it's like the average the average transactional gas limit is uh 21,000 so yeah and the gas limits used to be like 4,700 uh 4,712,357 trying to see what the current gas price is but yeah the, the point is like this is just not practical so gas sorry if I went on are, gas prices are dynamically set um yep. but essentially well gas prices you... but I'm talking about gas limits sorry Gas limits. 
Yeah, gas limits per block. Yeah, gas limits are essentially um, determined by the miners uh, yeah, using know. a rolling average. So there's an algorithm that just says that if blocks are something like over a certain percentage full, then the miners can vote to increase oh, the gas limit. Um, but yeah, anyways, it's... Um, that, yeah, I'm trying a, to see what the current gas gas limit is. Uh, I mean, it's gas prices. We're looking at... It's like just writing just for a full block still doesn't say. Where is it? Well, according to okay. Etherscan... Um, I'm on actually gas lists the gas limit. I thought it was a fixed number per block, right? Right. I don't know. This is one of those things I just don't remember. I just deal with it when I need to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or you know, when your contract I also don't doesn't compile, so you just raise yeah. the gas limit. <laughs> well, yeah, that I do. To- yeah, so most of the Everyone stuff I do is on that, private yeah. networks, too. So it's not like I'm... I'm dealing with public stuff because that's just too costly. Yeah. Um, and private networks are cheap to throw up. Um, uh, da, 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 but yeah, no, uh, it, it's, it's just, it's just like, this is just not practical. You know, it's just not practical. So yeah, but it's interesting. It's a cool experiment. I really like it. And I think it's cool. So anyway, yeah. Thanks for putting that across uh, to my attention. Yep. Yeah. I um, hope you found these discussions interesting join us next week and thanks for joining us again for another episode of dose of ether say goodbye colin (laughs) goodbye colin all right see ya thanks